Hi, I'm Dale Whitus, and this is My Life Wildlife. I'm a fire management specialist. Uh, I work in Fairbanks, Alaska for the Eastern Interior Refuges Fire Program. And that means I work for four different national wildlife refuges, Canudi, Yukon Flats, Arctic, and Tetlin. There's the fire management officer, my supervisor, and then myself. And then there's also a fire prevention tech, and that basically comprises our fire staff for those four different refuges out there. So just over 30 million acres. We're the jurisdictional agency, and we coordinate with the state of Alaska and Alaska Fire Service, and they do fire protection across the whole state. And that's, that's all divided out amongst them. So what we're doing is really coordinating between those operational firefighters and, and then the land managers, the refuge managers. It's basically helping from, from the get-go when a new fire is reported, and it's reported to us by, say, Alaska Fire Service. If we have a new fire out on the Yukon Flats, for instance, they'll give us a call, they'll let us know the latitude, longitude, where is it, and, you know, kind of the first the first size up, if you will. What, how big is this thing? What is it burning in? Is it on the edge of a lake and it's marshy country, or is it mature white spruce? Is it just creeping around and, and kind of smoldering, or do we already have a crown fire? And then looking at immediately pulling up all those different tools that we've got and looking at satellite imagery, looking at a database of cabins and and villages and other other values at risk that are out there across the landscape, talking with the refuge manager and and basically coming up with the plan. Is this a fire that that we need to put out right now? Is this a, a, a critical fire that's gonna burn right into a village within the next day or two? Or is this a more remote fire? And there's essentially no human values and you know within 10 or 20 miles. The job of firefighting brought me to Alaska. It was talking to a, a co-worker, a former co-worker who'd, who'd left South Dakota to come to Alaska. And he just talked about all the, just how firefighting was different in Alaska. It was big. You really felt like you could make a difference because the firefighting organizations are fairly small. The, the land area is huge. And without even trying to talk me into it, he wasn't trying to talk me into it. He was just telling me about his summer. And I, I was looking for a change at that point in my life and decided, oh, well, that's something to look into. And so I applied for the job without even really putting any thought into it because I didn't really think I had a chance. I never pictured myself in Alaska because don't really like the cold and that's that's all I knew about Alaska was cold weather it was a seasonal job it was uh, basically March to September and so you know once once springtime actually arrived and then it's midnight sun through the summer it was it's it's beautiful in Alaska in the summer and and that yeah just fell in love immediately I grew up in the Black Hills of South Dakota spearfish Realized I wanted to work out in the forest, so I, I switched college majors at, at one point and started pursuing a more environmentally focused studies. And I had a friend who worked a summer job as a hotshot fighting 
fighting fires on a Type 1 Hotshot crew, and I found out how much money he managed to make, which was a lot more than I was making at Subway or serving food. And uh, that initially attracted me, but then when I heard more about his stories and what firefighters did, I, I knew that I, I wanted to at least try it out. I eventually got a job. I got I got hired uh, in the in the Tetons on an interagency crew, so Grand Teton National Park and Teton National Forest, and came in with a tiny bit of chainsaw experience, helping my dad cut firewood, and then just they throw you right in and it's weeks and weeks of training which is a mix of classroom and hands-on training and it's and it was all it was all brand new to me and so very exciting you know i went through all this training in the in the springtime and then worked in the summer and and waited for fires and the engine crews would, would go out on small local fires and working on the fuels crew we weren't the first initial attack resource. And so it was It was July or late July or maybe even August before we finally got to go out and they put together a crew, a type two crew. We ended up in East Texas and you know, I'd never been to Texas before. This is, this, yeah, seeing the South firsthand as a 20 something year old. It was all it was all very exciting. And then we finally got a fire call and, and we got to the fire and we had to park in a in a big cow pasture and we hiked into the fire and it was basically the other end of the, the cow pasture had, had started on fire and it had been grazed down so there wasn't that much to burn. It was a grass fire, those burn quickly and they're usually out just as quickly. The name of that fire was the, the cow patty fire because that was really all that was burning uh, when we got there. It was just uh, dried cow patties and they were all on fire. They were all at least smoking. We quickly learned that the tools and the hand tools that we were carrying, the Pulaski's and the shovels, were not the best way to put those things out. And stomping on them with our heavy fire boots was the best way, just smothering them with boots. And that was not at all like what they taught us in class, but it was a good first fire because it showed me that uh, sometimes the best tool isn't necessarily the one that you're holding in your hand, the one you brought with you, and the one you thought you'd be using that day. It gets your heart going. I mean, it's 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 exciting, and and you can feel the heat, you can hear it, you smell it. Sometimes the sound of it is is louder than everything. You know, you're not hearing birds anymore or, or highway traffic. You know, you, the fires burn into the crowns the crowns of a forest. It's it's loud, often described as like a roaring freight train. Human nature and, and the animals too. I mean, everybody recognizes this thing is dangerous. Like, I gotta get out of here. And your adrenaline goes up, your heart rate goes up, and then, and then it becomes like, okay, like, don't panic. You gotta control your fear. Think, think before you act. Like, what, what do I need to do now? What, what are we doing here? It, it, it all becomes about using your training, falling back in your training and really thinking on like the basics of, you know, where am I? What is the fire doing? Is, am I safe? Like what's, what's going to happen next? What are the different scenarios? You know, what could go wrong and what can, what can we do not right now to have the best possible outcome? basics of firefighting are are the same that they were 100 years ago or, or even 
even longer. So trying to create a little bit of a line of bare fuel, the fire can burn up to and run out of fuel and, and stop there on its own accord. And so you're using some sort of digging tool, a scraping tool like a Pulaski to scrape with the back end, the hoe end of it, or using the, the ax end to chop trees and brush out of your way to kind of create that control line. And then it's water, if you have it. A lot of places in the in the U.S., there's not that much water around. In Alaska, we're blessed, and so we we use pumps, and we have extensive hose lays that go on for miles and miles and miles. In Alaska, you can't, you generally can't dig down to mineral soil, and so it's a little bit different. And you're cutting a what we call a saw line, where you're removing the <clears throat> the trees and brush, and you're creating an opening, basically a fuel break. And then you're putting in the, the hose and charging it, getting the whole system set up and so you know you can spray water everywhere you need it at a moment's notice. And then uh, generally using fire as well, you've got your control line in and you're ready and you've got people there and you've got water on hand and you've got backup plan. You have a plan in place that you've discussed and briefed everybody on and then you put fire on the ground when the weather conditions are right and you, you burn out that unburned fuel between between yourself and the main fire, and if everything goes according to plan, then later that day or within a couple hours, you're mopping it up and uh, you got a, a straight line that you can easily patrol and that's now the new edge of the wildfire. And so you have made the wildfire bigger and had to you know burn more, more forest land or, or grassland or whatever to achieve that goal, but it's, it's the safe way of, of doing that. In the Western US, in Alaska, these landscapes have had have had natural fire on them for millennia. And the stuff, the, the trees that, that grow in a lot of places, they're adapted to fire or they're at least resistant to fire. They have, essentially, there's a ecological relationship between those plants and what what firefighters think of as fuels because that's what's going to burn when they get dry. There's a relationship between those plants and fire that's been going on for, for millennia and fire is generally good in these western U.S. landscapes because it's always been there and but ideally it would be frequent, fairly frequent, like every every year or every couple of years a low intensity fire would come through and, and burn these areas and basically kind of kind of clean up the forest floor or you know in, in the great plains and grasslands or places like alaska and minnesota and elsewhere where there's a lot of lake country uh, you know burning up those dry grasses that kind of thatch that's that's always there you know just like it is on your in your lawn unless you, you rake it out you know it's it's still going to be there just kind of hidden by the green grass it's it's when we've there's been a history of of fire suppression there was a policy for a while the 10 a.m rule where basically any new fire that was reported we wanted it out like completely put out by 10 a.m the following day so that means getting to the fires quickly finding them when they're still small and when you can when you can put them out in a single day and that seemed like a good a good thing we were very successful at that for many decades until we realized well you do that for too long there's a lot of a lot of the landscape that has not burned and there's a lot of fuel buildup there's a lot of dead grasses and old trees and rotting logs on the ground and younger stuff growing up and interlocked branches and when that stuff does burn then 
there's very little chance that you can easily put it out in a day. So that that fire suppression grew to kind of become a monster of its own, and it, it made um, a lot of those landscapes more prone to, to the big catastrophic fires instead of the small frequent fires that we'd like to see. So a lot of marshland, a lot of lowland, but also broken hills here and there, you know, small hills, a lot of black spruce forests, which grow in pretty in pretty poor soil, marshy conditions, you know, right above permafrost at times. And those trees are fire adapted and they have what we call serotonous cones, which their their cones basically hold on to the seeds until a fire goes through and the, the heat of the fire essentially opens those cones up, kind of melts the, the wax and the resin in them and essentially releases the seeds which is great because it's just it's immediately after the fire has swept through so you got this huge recycling of nutrients it might have generally burns these forests all at once but they're adapted to that so there's immediately a new seed bed all these nutrients are getting recycled and it's it's generally really beneficial for like moose that are browsing shrubs and such i've seen a lot of very positive wildlife interactions with fire like i haven't i've been out on a lot of fires obviously over a large landscape over many years and very rare for me to find a dead fox or a dead moose or something that got killed by the fire bird nests or ground ground nesting birds are, are probably the, the most at risk but they're also tend to be in wetter environments so it's not always it's not always the case that their nests will get burned up they'll just have to deal with smoke for several days or weeks there's definitely an effect of climate change on, uh, on wildfires in Alaska. Biggest change that I have seen is the increase in lightning. Just look at the kind of the way warm weather builds in the summer and creates big thunderstorms. And there's there has been an increase of, of large thunderstorms and, and subsequently lightning. And that's what drives fire ignitions in interior Alaska. Increasing temperatures, fires are tending to get to get larger. Spring is earlier, the fall is a little bit later, so there's a longer fire season, which they adjusted several years ago. They moved it earlier in the year basically to have the ability to bring to bring the seasonal wildland firefighters on early and to get them all trained up before the fires were actually were burning. Alaska is pretty different from the rest of the fire management community in the western U.S. Kanuti Refuge, Tetlin Refuge, the Yukon Flats. I, I love flying over those areas and if I was a duck I think that's where I'd want to live. It's just a beautiful area and there's just so much water. This has been My Life Wildlife a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers, Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman for Citizen Race Car. Audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home 
nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.